0: All right, welcome back. Our study on the doctrine of feet washing identified the necessity for believers to wash their feet from sin, which dirties the believer who walks where he ought not to walk. I still love that phrase, where he ought not to. Ought not, it's just kind of fun to say together. Um, <laughs> Jesus identified this to his disciples, and John also taught this concept in his first epistle, 1 John, which he identified where he identified that being a believer, saved by grace, redeemed by the blood, and declared holy and blameless by God, does not necessarily amount to or declare fellowship between God and the believer. It creates the possibility for it, but doesn't equate to fellowship. Because of this, John instructed, rather commanded, that believers are to confess their sins to God, not for renewed salvation or continued salvation, but rather for renewed fellowship in their relationship with God. If your sin is charged to Christ, past, present, and future, you cannot do anything after you've accepted Christ to lose that because it's charged to Christ, not to you. Fellowship is defined as having commonness with God, that is being in complete agreement with God regarding cosmos theos, which is his world system. And on that note, we already have our first typo of the night. Was
1: Was it? No.
0: I don't know, after last week when I put cosmos diabolos and you guys all yelled heresy, I was pretty impressed. Anyway, when we're in complete agreement with God regarding cosmos theos, we are in fellowship with him. This confession of sin is known as believer's confession and is accomplished through, through the divine communication system granted to believers by God because they are redeemed, because they are saved by grace, and because they are holy and blameless. We've called this communication system prayer for lack of better creativity. This confession of sin is known as Believer's Confession and is accomplished through, through the divine communication system granted to believers by God. If that seems repetitive, it's because it is. This we have termed prayer, for lack of better creativity. The teaching of Scripture identifies that God is faithful and righteous for the purpose of cleansing the confessing believer from sin. And on that note, we've already gone through 1 John 1, 9. Now take 30 seconds or so identify where you're at. If there's dirt on your feet that needs to be cleansed by our faithful and righteous God, Um, I would encourage you to confess that and get back into agreement with him regarding what he prescribed about your relationship with him and the world system that he uh, has for you to operate in. Um, After about 30 seconds, I will open in prayer for us. Heavenly Father, thank you for the privilege you have afforded to us through your Son, both for salvation and the relationship that you have given us through him, and through his death and resurrection on the cross, but also for the life that we can have in him. Not just the eternal life, but the life that he is willing and able to give to those of us who will choose to accept him, and who will choose to obey the commands of your word, and the lifestyle that that he modeled for us on this earth. Teach us tonight with your Holy Spirit. Encourage us. Convict us, if need be, Father, of any sin that may be separating us from you, that we can confess it and get back into a proper relationship with you. Thank you for that right and the privilege that we have being adults in your family through your son. Thank you for tonight in the study. Please bless it and guide us through it in Jesus' name. Amen. Alright. We're still working on that faith in action, evidence of true spirituality. Chapter 1 pretty much deals with this, ultimately. So, as we look at what it means to be truly spiritual and how to accomplish that, we're looking at this first evidence, faith in action. Faith, again, is from pisteos, which is a feminine noun, meaning complete dependency. When you have faith in something, you are completely dependent upon it. Um, enough said on that one. Let's take a review of the process of testation from James 1, 14 to 15 which says, But each one is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own lust." Then when lust is conceived, it gives birth to sin, and when sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. Principles relative to the process of testation. This is a list that will probably be our review from here on out if we ever need to review this again. Uh, whether we need to or not, we probably will end up doing so, knowing me. But um, we've combined the teachings of verse 14, teachings of verse 15, and the studies that we've done into this list Um So there shouldn't be anything necessarily new here. The wording might be a little different, but let's go ahead and review those principles relative to the process of testation. Number one, each individual possesses a dominant lust pattern from 1 John 2.16. Number two, it is under the appeal and authority of the individual's dominant lust pattern that the individual is tested. Number three, Satan and company bait the trap with bait that appeals to the dominant lust pattern of the individual. Number four, the Greek word, exel kamenos identifies that the dominant lust pattern of the individual drags the individual to the bait, forcing the individual to make a volitional decision one way or the other. God does the same thing with us in Christ on the cross. We are dragged to the point of having to deal with it. Number five, when the individual volitionally consents to consume or accept the bait, lust makes the bait and the individual one. This is called lust conception. Number six, following lust conception, sin is brought forth in the individual. Number seven, once sin is brought forth in a completed form, spiritual death is birthed in the life of the individual. That's just kind of a weird statement, isn't it? Spiritual death is birthed in the life of the individual. If that individual is a non-believer, another sin is recorded as having been committed by him. If the individual is a believer, fellowship with God is disrupted until believer's confession is accomplished and his sin is charged to Christ, having already been paid for. So with that review in place, that's the process of testation. The, the mechanics for defeating the test is what we are currently studying, on, studying in. And we should finish that up next week. Um, we, we will always be finishing up that study, though, to be honest. It's, there's always more that we learn about how not to fall victim to the testing and the temptation that we face. Uh, but James 1, 16 to 17 identifies part of what James is dictating to the diaspora about the, test, uh, the testation process. And it says, Do not be deceived, my beloved brethren. Every good thing given and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shifting shadow. We have so far studied verse 16 and part of verse 17. These are principles relative to defeating the process of testation from our previous studies. Number one, the English phrase, do not be deceived, is more adamantly, in the Greek, stop being deceived with non-truth. Number two, through the present passive participle, planosthé, James teaches the end game of the process of testation as being deception. In other words, the result, the ultimate goal of uh, dis- of planosthé is deception. Number three, the individual is deceived by Satan and company through the agency of their dominant lust pattern to disagree with God regarding truth or reality. Number four, knowledge of these things that the end game priority of the the end game priority of deception being one and the product of sin being an erroneous reality or truth system i missed that one knowledge of these things the in game priority of deception and the product of sin being an erroneous reality or truth system allows the believer to combat the test in other words when we know that the end game is deception the same cover trying to deceive us not necessarily get us to sin that's the byproduct of deception uh, and then the The product of sin is a false reality or a pseudo-reality that we now live in and operate in until we confess. We understand those things. We're able to better combat the test that we're facing and refuse the bait with our free will. Number five, furthermore, knowledge that good things and perfect things only come from the source of God creates the ability for the believer to identify good and perfect gifts from Satan and company's counterfeit, counterfeit merchandise. In other words, to compare good and perfect things from God with counterfeit merchandise produced by Satan and Company. Number six, from the Greek word agathe, James identifies a good thing, which is a thing possessing natural inherent value. Number seven, a perfect gift is identified from the Greek word telion, as being complete according to its blueprints. Those are the good and perfect gifts in first part of 17. Number eight, knowledge of these truths allows the believer to examine the bait set by Satan and Company with the purpose of identifying its inherent value and/or its state of completion compared to God's blueprints. Number nine, the combination of this truth with the examination of the bait source allows the believer to reject that which is worthless, counterfeit, or from any source but God. Which leads us to defeating the test, part three which will deal with the phrase coming down from the Father of lights. Last week we studied every good thing given and every perfect gift is from above. James 1.17 says that and co- continues on saying that those things from above come down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shifting shadow. Having identified that only good things and complete gifts come from above being understood as the throne room of heaven? James expounds in verse 17 regarding the mechanics pertaining to good things and complete gifts arriving in the life of the individual. In doing so, James identifies the source of good things and complete gifts, as well as the location from which they depart. Every good thing given, every perfect gift is from above, katabinon, apatu patros, ton photon, which is translated in New American Standard as coming down from the Father of Lights. This was previously identified through study or what was previously identified through study was that all things with natural inherent value and those gifts that are found to be in completion according to their blueprints come to the individual from above. In other words, something that has natural inherent value is good, it's valuable. Something that is found to be complete has been completely manufactured from the Greek word "telion," We get this understanding that it's completely manufactured to its specifications. The blueprints were printed. So the pieces were put together. It was manufactured, and it has been completed. It's got that little, um, they've been examined by QM forty six sticker on it, or whatever the little quality control sticker is that we put on these things. Um, so it's a completed gift that is brought down, uh, or a natural, inherent, inherently valuable thing. With above from verse from part one of seventeen being a reference to the throne room of God in heaven, it would make logical sense then that those good and complete gifts would need to travel from above in heaven to below on earth. Therefore, they must katabaino. Katabaino is the limo or dictionary form of katabainan. It is a compound word derived from the preposition kata, which prefixes the verb baino. This word is a problem. Kata literally means down from, when used with a genitive or ablative case, as it is in verse 17. Baino is more difficult to define due to its failure to appear in any instance in New Testament Greek, definitions must be sought for pre New Testament and post New Testament writings along with secular Koine and classical writings of the time period. So, I understand that by no, our understanding, our definition for by no doesn't derive itself from any New Testament usage, it comes from secular Koine writings and classical writings of uh, the pre and post New Testament writing time periods. Now, with that said, we can be certain what it means. It becomes very clear quickly that bino carries with it the idea of spatial relocation, that is movement, taking one object or one object moving from one place to another. Context dictates whether bino and its derivatives should be defined as coming or going or moving or any of a plethora of other verbs denoting spatial relocation. Again, there's an object that is transporting or being transported or moving or going or coming or any of these things from one location to another. The emphasis may all be on the fact that it came from that place, that it's coming from that place, uh, that it's going away from that place, could be a number of things you know, that context will dictate. But again, by no is that spatial relocation concept, that within the terms of space, something is moving around. Within the context of James 1.17b, the best choice appears to be coming because of the emphasis it places on the source, travel, and arrival of good things and complete gifts. When coupled with kata, the understanding of coming down is created to accurately define kata non in the context of James one seventeen. Kata non is a neuter adverbial participle that emphasizes the arrival of good things and complete gifts from the throne room of God to the life of the individual. Someone remind me to get to... Uh, that participle part before we get too far. When you see that the next Greek word pop up where it says katabanon, if I haven't touched on the participle concept, someone just throw a heretical sign up or something, let me know that I've I've left something out. All right, Um, I intend not to, but I may. Syntactically, we would expect the neuter of katabanon, uh, which is our neuter adverbial participle, so we've got a neuter and that's what we would expect in order to harmonize with the subject to which Catabinan relates, which are the good things and complete gifts. Since both both of Catabinon's subjects dosis, good things, and Dorema, complete gifts, are neuter, they are identified as tools used to accomplish something. So our good things that are given and the complete gifts that are provided from God coming down from heaven are designed to accomplish something. They're tools used for something. They're coming down from heaven to the life of the individual is so that they may accomplish something, whether in the individual or elsewhere. This is a part of their, nat- their natural value and br- blueprinted design. The preposition apa, there it is. I missed it. No, you guys raised your hand or anything. Thank you. <laughs> As an adverbial participle, this word is describing an action, and that's the coming down part, saying that these things have, are coming down. They're in the process of it. Um, and then the participle part, when you have an adverbial participle, participles in general identify laws. Right? or the principles we call. I call them spiritual laws because it's something that is the case. You can't get past it like our laws of science. Um, generally speaking, that's what participles do. Adverbial participles, they almost always have that connotation with them. If you have an adjective, it kind of more shows the quality rather than the, par- the the law concept of it. But here we have an adverbial participle that identifies this is a law. This is the spiritual law of God's world system. When God, when God sends a good, or when a good thing comes, or a perfect, complete thing is or a complete gift appears, it has come from God. This is a spiritual law. It doesn't come from anywhere else. There's nowhere else it could come from. So we have no chance of being deceived if we understand the source or the nature of what we are faced with. And all this, again, is within the context of defeating the test and looking at the bait that's on that trap. Is that bait good? Is that bait complete? Is that bait from God? We identify it is and truly not bait and it's not a trap. It's probably something we should start going after. If we realize it isn't, then it's a bait. We need, it's a bait, it's a trap, we need to stay away from it. But the spiritual law from that neuter adverbial participle identifies that only good things come down from God. He doesn't send down bad things. In other words, God cannot send us evil things. God cannot send us things that he hasn't said are good. Now, that doesn't mean that God will stop. All evil things from happening to us. We're in a, the middle of a chapter that talks about the diaspora being um, <clears throat> coming into these different circumstances that are testing them and trying them to see what they're made of. Why would we put? Th- why would James put this verse in here that says that basically all good things come from God? If it was not the case that God didn't send bad things, did we follow that? I'm not sure. I followed that. That's alright. All good things come from God. All bad things come from somewhere other than God. Could be us, could be a consequence of their actions, could be Satan and company, could be other people. But all things which have no natural inherent value and all things which are not complete um, or have not come to their complete um, build or um, production do not come from God. Those things come from an outside source.
1: Mm-hmm. yeah well, After you Yes. really rabbit-trailed, so you... Mine's kind of rabbit-trailed, too.
0: Is it the same rabbit trail? This could be fun. No, I'm pretty
1: right. sure it's not. You know how some people are like, God was silent, a silent time, or whatever. Yeah. What does that mean? <laughs>
0: like, it means they God don't know what God wants silent, from them, for the most right? part. He may have been. Or it may have been that they weren't looking at God, and necessarily, look, they may have been looking at the things of God. Or seeking, they weren't necessarily seeking God, but seeking the things of God. Sometimes God has, in my personal life, held himself what I would consider silent, but really, he's telling me something. And that be still, and know that he is God, and I'm not. And that silence kind of speaks volumes in that. It's not used like that, typically. Usually, it's, well, God's not telling me what I need right now. Well, no, God will always tell you what you need right now. It may not be right now that you need what you think you need.
1: Yeah. You're probably wrong. Though.
0: But that's, yeah. yeah. You are probably, that's right, Jamin. You are probably incorrect, not God. Yeah. And, and that's not to say that in those times... And it's not a real concern, is that I, usually those times come when someone is, is purposefully seeking out what God wants from them or seeking out some sort of comfort about a situation. Um, so it, it's not to say that it's necessarily a bad thing. It just means that realistically, when, that, when, you, when you feel that, I would encourage you to evaluate whether you are seeking God himself or seeking the things of God or whether you are allowing God to be God in your life.
1: I feel like that's never happened to me, but maybe I just don't know. If, it if
0: anyone wants to know the will of me or the one who sent me, he will know it. Jamin, what's your rabbit trail? Um, Forget? No, no. I can read the last three slides if you like.
1: <laughs> no. Is there a verse? Well, this is, this is actually. This is, I'm sorry, I thought it was something else. Is there a <laughs> verse something about if you see God, he will give you the desires of your heart or something like that? Do you remember that?
0: I don't know
1: where it is. Um, sounds like... I was thinking about I take my dog
0: for a walk. sounds like there's a combination of two verses there, but I, there there may be a one that's in there in like 1st right. or 2nd John. What? Psalm
1: 37. What? Oh, can you read it? So let yourself also in the Lord, and he shall give you with There you go. Okay. Can't so, get much better excellent. than that. Excellent. Huh? Oh, thank you. <laughs> yes, saw, there is. It's was a was good saying. one. It's in Psalms. <laughs> 374 right? Talk to Noel. So yeah. I, I was thinking about it, and, and normally you think about, well, if you seek God and He'll provide for you, that sort of, but in a way, it's almost like you seek God and He'll give you the desires of your heart, as in He will give you desires of your heart, not He'll give you what your heart desires. He'll give desires for your heart. He'll give you the yeah. desires that are for the right things. That then he and there's he a passage
0: in his. the New Testament that yeah. goes along with that, that says yeah. basically He puts those desires in right. your heart because you're seeking what He right. wants, and so He puts desires in your heart. It's not that you'll get what you want because you're seeking Him. Right.
1: Oh, no, absolutely. Yeah. He, will, he will, if you're seeking him, then you will desire the things that he will give you. Precisely. But I, I, had, thought, I had thought of that verse that way, and so as I was walking, I was thinking, oh, he will give you the desires, not the things.
0: Yeah, oh, that was cool. he won't give you what you want. He'll show you what you want.
1: <laughs> he will, yeah, he'll give you the want and then the thing. Yeah, yep um, Which, in a way, means that you can, if you were in fellowship with God and you're seeking God, he can lead you through your desires, right? So... Not that your desires, yeah. you like, well, I'm, I'm seeking God, oh, and I want to do something wrong. Like, within the context of um, God's leading, he may lead you through your desires. Because mm-hmm. if you're seeking him first and relationship with him, then he can lead you and he can show you his will through your desires. Right? Yeah.
0: Um, yeah, definitely.
1: It's uh, not that, oh, well, I want it, so it has to be wrong.
0: And in fact, the fact that I'm married is evidence of that. Yeah. it's <laughs> really what it comes down to. And not just Mary, but Mary to Robin, really right. is that, thats right. what it comes down to—is that evidence. I mean, and the hard part is—is is knowing that the desire that you have was placed there by God, and not letting that desire become your God, right? And direct you rather than God directing you with that and through that desire. Right. Yeah, it's—it's yeah. a, it's a fine line. It, it really is, because—and that's where it comes down: to, Are you seeking the things of God or God Himself? Right. it—that's it, it. that question can change your your whole day, or I even mean, can change your life, really, if you think about it. Uh, I came across it first time in a Max Cicado book about things. And it was just, it hit me, and it was like, you know what? A lot of times we do seek the things of God rather than God himself. Yeah. And God, I, I need healing for this. God, yeah. you know all things. Give me this answer. No, it's yeah, like God, who are you? That's <laughs> what we need. You, know? <laughs>
1: you might want to get on this today. Yeah.
0: <laughs> yeah.
1: yeah. It's hard for some of I will be like, well, I want that. So it's probably wrong. So, you know, it's yeah. like the opposite reaction. But that's kind of like legit, just do something but it's Sort of like, well, seek God and seek God. In, in a way, that's yeah.
0: what i but it's not, it's not like that. It's not just go and do whatever you want. It's, no, it it's under the premise of it being submitted to him. Yeah. yeah. In fact, the reason it took me so long to accept what God was doing in my life and in Robin robbing my relationship as friends leading us into more was because I wasn't willing to accept. <laughs> Knowing that my desire was was towards that, I, I, I kind of, I guess it would just be a rebellious attitude. I kind of told God, if that's what you're going to do, you're going to have to do it without me wanting to. <laughs> and he did. And it, and it was just because I didn't want to trust my own desire to leave me. Because it, it doesn't work right. so. that way. And he did. Yeah. And I was grateful. Yeah, like, okay. <laughs> I didn't fight him too hard. It was just, you know, yeah. it's like if this is you, you're going to have to prove it. Because <laughs> I'm not going down that road. Yeah. <laughs> huh. That's interesting.
1: Sorry. Yeah. Can you rabbit trail? <laughs> it wasn't rabbit. That wasn't your rabbit trail? No, so that was a. Problem. Okay, go ahead, rabbit trail. Did God create sin?
0: No. This verse proves it. Right. I was gonna lead because into I, that I, before I, she raised I her
1: hand. Because he created by like, giving us free will by creating right, then necessarily that implies a, a not right. Yep. So so whether he, he didn't directly create it created the circumstance in which it could exist.
0: Yeah. The only time that that we philosophically get confused about that is when when we view ourselves as equals to God. And right as this moral or ethical thing that God himself is subject to. God creates oh. right, we're it flows we're together. under that. He's under that, and so if he did that, then he's also subject to it. Mm-hmm. So yeah, it actually, when that question is posed, it actually makes right and wrong bigger than God, or I guess above God.
1: Oh, really. so, yeah. Heard
0: it's a Godly hugely contentious debate. Say
1: that's why I was curious what you thought because yeah. somebody said like said the opposite. And I was like, oh, well, you know, he was a really good Christian guy. I, was like, oh. I don't know if he, I don't know if he meant that, but he asked us, and then we are like, no. Well, and he kind of argued the other side, but I'm not sure quite what he thought.
0: but It's the same question. He never as, quite knew what was, yeah.
1: He created the framework in which sin
0: could exist. He created a command. You don't do it? Sin is disobedience. Right. Wrong is disobedience. We yeah. we change that through our own conformation to this world. It becomes moral or ethical according to the world rather than recognizing that what's wrong is not obeying God. That's that's the sin. So you can get the same discussion going by asking um can God create a rock so big he can't lift it? <laughs> right. But it's an anthropomorphism that is, it's like doing bad math. It's the same thing, is that God can create a rock as big as he wants, but there's no rock that's too big for God to lift, because God can do anything. And right. if he can create the rock big, as big as he wants, then he can always lift it. So it's, it's like doing bad math. It's kind of a fun conundrum, though. Yeah, somehow it's
1: interesting.
0: Yeah. So, no, God did not create evil. In fact, we've, as we're getting in, in, into our of Test Part 3 here, that's what we're learning to a large degree is that what is good comes from God. And that's a spiritual law, that only good things come from God. Now, you get into the question of directive will, permissive will, and overruling will. And permissive will is kind of like what just happens in our life. God, as a sovereign God, allows it to happen. And the, therefore, it's permitted. He doesn't cause it to happen. He doesn't um, ordain it in the sense of decreeing it. Um, and I have a huge problem with the reformed ordain, God God ordains all things statement because I disagree with their use of the word ordain. I understand their meaning is different, but I disagree with that word because it's such a loaded word, it means to decree, literally. So it's God ordains this to happen. He ordains every action. That means God himself is responsible for sin. Their message isn't going that direction with it necessarily, but their thought process does lead to that end um, at some point. So when we get to understanding God's will and directive versus permissive versus overruling, then we start understanding a little bit more about this thing or these things with the all good things come from God. And why do bad things happen to good people or faithful people or any of that kind of stuff? It all comes down to his overall will, um, his overruling, his permissive or his directive. Ultimately, we should be doing this directive will 100% of the time. That's fellowship. That's harmony with God. Whatever he directs in every single moment, in every single way, we should do. We end up doing the permissive will 99% of the time. And it's overruling really well it rules the circumstances many times. It pulls us back. I call it the leash law theory. Anyway, lots of rabbit trails there. So, by non apa is this term coming down from. And the preposition apa literally means away from. It identifies motion of an object away from someone or something. Through this, which is the ablative case usage of a paw, emphasis is placed on the source from which those good things and complete things come down. So they come down away from something else. started here, they come down away from there. So we've got the motion from that one thing to another. Therefore, bino is satisfied with its spatial relocation concept. Harmony of God's word. Katabai nana pa, if James were... <laughs> Thank you. Let me get a drink of water. Katabai nana pa. Like the
1: secret passageway should
0: open or something. Like yeah. You say that. <laughs> See, Greek is fine. I tell people it's fun all the time. They don't believe me. If James were to stop with this katabai nana pa concept and he just basically says every good thing, given and every perfect gift comes down from above or it's from above coming down from if you stopped right there and all we had was that first part that we learned last week and then we're, the first two words we're looking at this week we'd have a completely different understanding from this verse because we'd recognize that it's from heaven that these things come but really heaven is the location that they are in when they come but they're not the source of them so it comes from heaven but they're the source of good things and perfect things is not heaven itself. God, James continues with katabananapah to patros. This is fun. Not only does James identify that good things and complete gifts come from the throne room of God, but that they come down, having come away from God himself, specifically to patros. To patros is God the Father. You could have had theos there, which would have which typically, okay, let's just go to the next slide. Tupatros is the ablative form of "ton Patros," the title given to the first being of the Godhead, God the Father. There is a clear distinction that James is making here through the term tupatros, Patros" as opposed to the more generic term "Theos." "Theos" is typically used to reference God the Father; however, it's often used or the Godhead of the Trinity as well. So, context dictates a lot more whether it's Trinity or whether it's God the Father. Usually, the role is seen as God the Father, typically. Um, In the New Testament, at least. When you've got to patros, the specification here is on God the Father. And we'll see, actually, that it's actually not just God the Father of all things, or God the Father of the God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, Trinity concept, but the Father of the lights, specifically, which is going to lead to an interesting concept as well. So, by using this term to patros versus theos, James is identifying God the Father. Now, in our Trinitarian concept, we've got the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. The roles that we see is the Father governs the Godhead. He is the moderator, if you will. And this gets all very tricky because we have to kind of interpret it as three different things, three different individuals connected as one. So we call them personalities, and that's the phrase I will use. I don't know that I like any of the phrases that we have humanly, attributes, personalities, characteristics, qualities, qualities. so bear with me through this as we identify that we do firmly believe in one God, the Godhead, who is made up of three revelations of God, three properties of God, three personalities of God, three qualities of God: the Father, the Son and the Holy Spirit. And we will get there when we get to heaven, as far as I'm concerned on that. In other words, James is being explicitly clear here as to the source of good things and complete gifts. They're from to Patras, the Father. The governing personality of the godhead now in the trinity the father is the one that carries out the plan he's the authority structure the authority figure of the of the three that we've got the son is the one the worker and the holy spirit is the work or the power that, that is carried out by um, you can see this in a three-person construction team when you've got the boss then you've got the foreman and you've got the hired hand the boss says here are the plans lays them out on the hood of his truck says, I need you to build this house according to these plans. So his uh, foreman goes out and says, all right, let's do this. We, he grabs his tool belt, gets on there, starts putting the studs together, starts nailing the walls up, and begin the framing all together. Um, and the, all the while, the helping hand is giving him the supplies he needs to take care of that. That's kind of the concept that we have here. So <clears throat> the father has that governing personality. He's the one that has the plan and dictates its application or its in, implementation. In other words, right now, God the Father is, is doing something with his plan, with, the, with God's plan. And God the Son carried that out through his life on earth, but he continues to do so uh, at this time as well. We're not sure exactly what he's doing. This is not to say, though, that the... Oh, let me get back to that slide. So while God the Father is the one from whom these good things and complete gifts come from, That is not to say that the other two personalities of the Godhead are entirely removed from this process, because remember, each personality is a part of the being of God and works with the other personalities to accomplish the plan, as is seen in the story of creation. Uh, That allusion there, when I say as is seen in the story of creation, is a reference to Jesus being credited with the physical act of creating the world, God the Father being credited with the command that says, let there be, and then the Holy Spirit being the power and the entity that allows the Son to then make the things that God said, God the Father said, let there be. So <laughs> that's the illusion there, um, and we haven't talked about that before, so I just thought I'd throw that out there. However, James is making the distinction that the credit for receiving good things and complete gifts goes to the Father, their source. This is quite telling regarding the crafting of good things and complete gifts, for the role of the Father is to dictate the plan, to keep it, to delegate what is necessary to the Son and the Holy Spirit, in order to accomplish said plan. Therefore, the understanding of the Father as the source of that which is inherently good and that which is complete according to its blueprint creates a natural emphasis on the good things and nat- or good things and complete gifts being a part of God's direct will for the individual as opposed to his permitted or allowed will. In other words, when we see something that's good or we see something that is complete and something that's from God, that is a part of his direct will. He is directly ordained that. He has directly made that and placed that where it is. This would include then the idea that the Father provides each individual with that which is naturally good and completely developed for their needs in and out of circumstances, to which we attribute the term grace. In other words, that which God sends down is individually tailored for the moment in which it is sent and the individual to which it is sent. These are the good things and complete things. Part of grace is knowing that God has given us all that we need to accomplish all that he is asking us to do. So if we don't seem to have all the things that we need to accomplish what we think God is asking us to do, we may need to reevaluate whether he's actually asking us to accomplish that. It may be a matter of timing. It could be a number of different things. Um, if God is asking us to accomplish something and we don't see that we have the tools that we need or the resources we need to accomplish that, it may be just a matter of just trusting and waiting for God to provide that. But God sends down that which is individually tailored for the moment in which it is sent and the individual to which it is sent to. Good things, complete things. Things with natural inherent value. Things that have been built and completed according to their blueprints. What we're ultimately saying here is that all good things and all complete things are a part of God's ultimate plan. Or, as we use that term ultimate, I use the term directive. His directive will. What he is going to accomplish in history. So that there can be no confusion regarding the source, James includes the noun construct ton photon. Ton photon is literally translated as of the lights. Ton photon. I thought, I thought you were holding in laughter. I was going to try to make you laugh. Ton photon is literally, literally translated, I digress again, as of the lights with of parenthetically added to reveal the implication of the generative case identified in the article and noun forms. Um, the genitive case identifies source or possession. Um, when we say the king's crown, that would be an example of a genitive phrase. Um, English doesn't have genitive. We use possessive um, words um, like of. But in Greek you'd have katabitn apa tu patros, ton photon. Two is genitive and ton is genitive. The difference being you've got a masculine and you've got a neuter um, of the subject. So to patros, patros is masculine, ton photon. Photon is neuter, so they're both genitive, so the the phrase doesn't have any word for of in there, which would be a preposition in English. It's literally coming down away from of the father of the lights. Look to the light, okay. photon being literally translated as of the lights because of its genetic or genitive case um, identified in the article and noun forms gives us a lot to discuss. The question is, what does that term Father of Lights mean? What does that title mean? Well, God is light. We know that. First John 1, 5 tells us that. But photon is also, and if I say photon, it, just let it go, because I cannot for the life of me get photon to come out all the time, all right? I'm just trying. It just doesn't work. So just because, especially because ton is photon, it's it should be matching anyway. But anyway, all right. So if I say photon, I mean photon, all right? So, pho- photon is plural. It was bothering me, alright, I'm sorry. Photon is plural and is preceded by a definite article, tone, whose major role is to declare specificity. When you have the article, the emphasis is on a specific thing. When you lack the article, like if it said, katabinon apatu patros photon, it would be talking about the quality of light. And we would see that in English with coming down away from the father of lights. Light takes on, you, when you lack that definite article in Greek, it focuses on the attributes of the noun that lacks the article, the attributes of light. What does light consist of? Who knows? God does. Light is God. No, God is light. There's a difference. So when you add tone in there, its role of being the definite article is to declare specificity. So we're talking about a number of lights here, at least one more than one light that we are talking about. And we're talking about specific lights. The attribution that I have made and this is not, I guess that I would say it, something that I would be extremely dogmatic about. I think it's open to interpretation, but I think we've got good support to identify that it's talking about the Genesis 1 creation of the world and the creation of the sun, stars, and moon. Um, that's the attribution I have made Um, Of God the Father, and this being a reference to God as being the Father of the lights recorded in chapter 1 of Genesis at the creation of the world. And being their Father, the one from whom, or God is the one from whom they were derived, their source and possessor. Look at Genesis 1 16 18. It says, God made the two great lights, the greater light to govern the day, and the lesser light to govern the night. He made the stars also. God placed them in the expanse of the heavens to give light on the earth, and to govern the day and the night, and to separate the light from darkness. And this last phrase, and God saw that it was good. That word in Hebrew refers to something that is designed as an instrument to accomplish something that's the proper tool to get the job done. The sun, the stars, and the moon are designed to govern. We see that clearly. They're light in the day, or the night in the day. But God said that they are the proper tools to accomplish the job. The definite article and plural form of photon indicate the probability. Notice that word probability. I think it's a high, high probability that the title used by James is done so to remind the diaspora that God is the source of the sun and moon and stars, which are themselves good things and complete gifts. So when he's, when James is saying that all good things and complete gifts come from God, coming down from the Father of the sun, the stars and the moon, he's reminding them of what God has already made and the good things that God has already put there to govern the light or the day and the night. Thus, James provides the diaspora and believers everywhere with an example of God's merchandise for comparison to Satan companies. The sun, the moon, the stars is what God has produced. It is His merchandise. He has accomplished it. He has built it. Satan Company put bait in the trap, which is also merchandise. Um, Satan was said to be lifted up by the merchandise of his wares, it means the work that he did to produce merchandise. Um, he built stuff so well that he was lifted up with his pride was part of it. This further bolsters the foundation James is laying in order to equip and encourage the diaspora to defeat the process of testation and stop being deceived by Satan and company. This concept that God is the father of the lights. And again, in English, it says father of lights. And this is why I said this gets fun. Because in our head, we read father of lights, and we keep hearing that phrase. The definite article is there. It's father of the lights. There's so more than one light, specifically, that's being referred to. <clears throat> So James bolsters what he's talking about and how to defeat the test by reminding them, to say, hey, we've seen what God has made. He's made the sun, he's made the moon, he's made the stars, designed them to govern the night and the day, and he said that they were the right tool to accomplish the job. Doesn't that sound like a good and perfect gift to you? Good and complete gift? Defeating the process, process of testation is clearly possible. The question comes down to the volitional choice of the believer to recall that which is good to which scripture speaks clearly as well. Academic growth in Bible doctrine applied in dependency upon its truths creates the ability within the believer submitted to God to defeat the test. For this reason, the psalmist wrote, Your word I have treasured in my heart that I may not sin against you. Some of you may know it better by thy word I have hidden in my heart that I may not sin against you. That wor- that verse isn't saying that I may I have hidden your word in my heart so that well, maybe I won't sin against you. it. No, so I won't have the possibility to sin against you because your word is in my heart. We know the heart, according to Scripture, to be our norms and standards, our natural operational pro- uh, standards and protocols. Those things that we have placed in there, meaning we have depended upon them. So in order to hide your word in God's heart, it's not merely talking about memorization and knowing the terms. In this verse, it's identifying that you have depended upon the word of God so that you may not sin against you. And the reason is identify, The reason there is identifying that you have the possibility not to, and the purpose was designed so that you would not sin against God. The believer's ability to defeat the test will hinge greatly on his willingness to compare the bait to that which is good, that which comes from God. If nothing else presents itself as being comparable to the bait, look to the stars, the moon, and the sun as examples of good things and complete gifts, created by God who is himself light, and the Father of Light. See First John one five through ten. I should inter- interject here. The other argument is that this is talking about God being the Father of Light itself, which is also true. God is Himself light. Um, to say that He's the Father of Lights, I'm not sure actually if I would say that is true, but I could see the argument. Problem is that that doesn't deal with the definite article. It also doesn't deal with the plural form of photon. Um, if it was a singular form, I could see okay maybe. We're talking about the light, the concept that we have of light um, in all of its properties. But because it's talking in plural, it has to be referring to more than one light, um, which the only thing I can see it coming down to and have no disharmony. And in my, in, my request and inquisition um, through the Holy Spirit to God was those lights that God created. Um, again, I'm not saying I'll be dogmatic on it, but that is what I, at this point, understand it to be referring to in am teaching um, if I find evidence to the contrary, I will let you know if you're curious. Yes, it is. How is it different,
1: though, kind like, of? <clears> like
0: the difference is that... The of Light and the Father of the light. Because Light is <clears throat> the And kind of, that's part of the reason I brought this part in here. Is that God is, um, God is himself light. Yeah. And so, in order to create the sun, and the moon, and stars... He shed that light into them, so is I see what you're saying, but I, I think really it's not necessarily an argument. So much right. it is as it is two sides of the same coin. Right. And I don't usually That's say that kind of a thing. Uh, like when it comes to the sovereignty of God versus the free will of man, I don't see arguments towards God's sovereign and God's uh, or man's free, has free will as two sides of the same coin. I see them as one argument that work together because God can be sovereign and man cannot free will. God sovereignly gave them free will, and if, man, if God was really sovereign, then free will, nothing man can choose, could disrupt his kingdom or his throne.
1: <laughs>
0: but, <clears throat> so that phrase, two has the same coin, I don't like using, but I think in this case we may just be missing the link, and partly because I haven't completely studied the concept, but it does appear that, because maybe like we have in uh, verse 17 of James 1, where it says that that which is good comes from heaven, or is from above, coming down from the Father of lights. Maybe the same thing is that the Father of the lights is God, who himself is light, and therefore can produce light in the lights themselves, the sun, the moon, the stars. Did right. you
1: call that? Kind of important, but yes.
0: Yeah. So again, the focus isn't on so much look at the stars and as being like, wow, that's like the star, that's amazing, and worship the star. The focus is, is these are things that God has created. Because he himself is light, he has created good things and complete things, and he's created the sun, the moon, the stars, as examples that we can always see, no matter what's going on. I guess if there's a thunderstorm going, we may not see the stars or the moon, but theoretically we can see light at some point, right? But he's created these things as reminders, and he's created them as merchandise that he has created, that we can see him through, and remember that that's a good thing from God. We need to compare it to other things. Does that answer a little bit?
1: Yeah, it wasn't really that. Kind of just no, tried no. to talk
0: my way around that one. But. I could see them being the same, the same coin, I guess, and be just two sides that we're not looking at both sides at the same time properly or something. But. Anything else? I don't really have anything yeah. <laughs> and that's why I said this gets fun was because of that that concept. Of, is it is the title being given to God as the Father of Lights? Or the father of the lights and what are the lights either way you have to question what is lights referring to where light shines so that it represent the truth of God and his grace and this is what we're saying it's not the light that we want to worship it's a representation of what that is to us being that those things were made by God and not so worship them worship their their maker and those things were provided in God's grace as good and complete things for us to see him and for, us to aco- to, and for those things to accomplish things in this world, um, if not for the least of them, for us to recognize who God is. In doing so, the light will expose that which is counterfeit and that which is not from God. I love that concept that light, darkness doesn't overtake light, but light overtakes darkness. And it always does. And what it does is it exposes darkness. This type of comparison must be adequately accomplished in a mechanical and systematic process until it becomes reflexive action as a part of the norms and standards by which the believer operates. In other words, we start off with this process of testation. And when we start battling the test and we see the bait and we compare it to, say, the sun and say, look what God created, that's a good, that's a perfect thing because it's doing these things, it's doing what God created to do. This bait isn't doing it. When we create that comparison and start doing that, and then continue to do that and continue to do that and continue to do that every time we're faced with a new test, it will build into us, into reflexive action. Same way we build habits, you will build a wheel track in your brain that goes down the same analysis path that when you come to the net, that test, the same same exact bait on the trap the next time, the analysis has been done, it gets a little quicker, it gets a little easier. The instant you break it, now you've created a divergent path. Now your brain actually has to figure out which path to go to. The broader path wins in your brain, at least chemically. but. It only wins when your volition allows it to. In other words, you can stop it. There may be a broad path towards sin, but the only way you're going to stop it is by changing your thought about that object. We talked about getting rid of the value that we place in things that have no value. Um, getting rid of the false things that we believe, or those things which aren't real in reality, but things that we want or perceive that we want. Um, and changing those things in our norms and standards so that we don't pursue them. So our norms and standards are our actions. They, are, they reveal our heart. When we, are allowed, when we allow God's light to expose the, the counterfeit things such as the bait and the trap and we mechanically and systematically begin to work through these things, the more we do it, the easier it becomes. And if we are in harmony with God's word and in fellowship with him, this becomes a reflexive thought process, a reflexive action because it's a part of our norms and standards. <clears throat> in doing that, Satan and company's in-game of deception will be cast out, light having revealed and exposed it as counterfeit merchandise. We can stop being deceived if we recognize what is counterfeit versus what is real. Philippians 4:8-9 sums it up nicely, saying, Finally, brethren, whatever is true, whatever is pure, or whatever is honorable, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is of good repute, if there is any excellence and if anything worthy of praise, Dwell on these things. These things you have learned and received and heard and seen in me. Practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. When we get to James 4, it talks about it defines sin. It says that him who knows the right, he who knows the right thing to do and does not do it, that's sin. We typically focus on sin as being doing the wrong thing. Well, if you change your perspective and look at it the other way around, sin's not doing the right thing. And that actually answers the question, did God create sin? No sin is not doing the right thing, not doing the wrong thing. And that gets really. It's
1: the. Yeah. yeah. The absence so, of goodness, not the presence of badness.
0: Right. Or
1: sin can be inaction just as much as it can be
0: action, Precisely. And that, that's where that right thing comes in, is is that if you're focused on doing the right thing, and the right thing is this, and you don't act on it, then you've sinned because you didn't do the right thing. Versus trying not to do the wrong thing, which means you're focusing on the wrong thing. Which means that you're not looking at the bait and comparing it to God's merchandise. You're looking at the bait going, I shouldn't do that. I shouldn't do that. Okay, I'm doing it. You know, That's how it works. We've got to change it and start looking and say, that's not the right thing. This is the right thing. This is real. This is true. This has value. This is from God. When we do that, that's when we win.